Posting his social business. <laughs> Nobody listens to me. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. Good to see you still looking around. And uh, if people are at home and you're watching this, get your butts in here, man. <laughs> Enough of this uh, sitting home stuff. Get your butts in here. I see some open seats. I'm not used to seeing that. And that's even with not all the seats in here that we normally have. Get your butts in here. Love you guys. That's, that's why I'm saying that. Um, go ahead and open to the book of Ruth. Uh, good to see you all. Uh, hope you're doing well. Looks like we got a thunderstorm coming here tonight. Uh, praying that it holds out till we get home. I don't know about you. It's ever since I was a little kid when it thunderstorms, such peace, man. I love to hear the sound of the rain and I just love it. I don't know if you guys are that way or some people don't like it at all. They get a little nervous, but... Um, so I have some questions, you know, for you as we're going to get ready to, you know, you've been with us at Calvary Chapel here enough times. Every time we go into a book, we begin with a little bit of an introduction. And in the introduction we have within the book, I go through and we talk about some different things. There's an outline. If you all didn't get it, there's a couple back on the table. If you need one, go ahead and grab one. Or if, if you didn't get one, raise your hand and we can have somebody bring you one. But it basically allows you to go through and study each book intelligently, right, with an outline as well as an introduction and everything that pastors put together and the staff put together for everybody. So if you need one, go ahead and raise your hands and everybody will get one like that. The first question I have for everybody here tonight is, do you believe that there's no such thing as coincidence, Right? Do you also believe that we have free will and choice? Again, I would expect everybody to say amen and yes, right? So be it. So my question for you tonight is how does that all work within the construct that God has established? Sovereignty and yet free will or choice? You know, I don't believe that we fully appreciate, and I'm, and I'm not, let me say that about myself. I don't think I fully appreciate God's sovereignty and the fact that he has chosen us, that we have this free will, and yet God is all-powerful, and I have no idea how it all works. I have no idea how it all works. That, that there's no such thing as coincidence, which means we know that there's no happenstance, but yet at the same time, we have free will in every single moment, in every single choice, in every single opportunity that way. How does that work? Well, I asked you those questions because the book of Ruth, we're going to read of both. We're going to see God's sovereignty and we're going to see man's free will. And it's very interesting because God's going to continue to work in spite of man's depravity and intellect. And I'm super excited about that because I praise God that it doesn't rely on anybody's intellect here, that we have a gracious and sovereign God, right? And I think any of us that have spent enough time in humility lane appreciate that, right? And at the, at the same time, we also understand that God has intended a better way. You know, uh, for those willing to choose and follow God's best, 
God has a, an appropriate plan, a, a, a lane for you and I to run in. Um, and despite the circumstances that are going on around us, God is in complete control. God is in complete control of all that. The book of Ruth is going to begin with a famine. And it's very, very important. You can't get upon the first verse or two without stopping and saying, what is the significance of this, right? Why did it begin with a famine? Now, I have a question for you. What would you do if you knew a famine was coming to your town, your city, or your state? And I want you to think about that here, and we're going to come back to that point because Elimelech made a decision based on that information. He knew a famine was coming, and he made a response or a choice because of that, okay? But I just want you to think, what would you do if you were Elimelech? If you knew your family and you knew that there was coming a famine and there wouldn't be enough food to feed you or your spouse or your children, what would you do in that circumstance or in spite of that, right? Now, you might remember we just started the book of Judges together, okay? And that was a time of what I use the term C-cubed. It's just a way to help you remember or memorize. C-cubed. The idea behind that is compromise, corruption, and confusion. That's what we saw happening in the book of Judges. Do you remember that? Compromise, corruption, and confusion. It's an easy way to remember it. In the book of Ruth, as elsewhere in the Bible, God demonstrates to all humanity with this account that salvation is offered to everyone, regardless of gender, race, right, skin color, ethnicity. And may I need to remind you that it's all in the backdrop the backdrop of sin that's going on in the darkest times ever in the book of Judges right way. National sin and idolatry. If there was a time for the church to unite or call for unity, now is the time. Just in corporate prayer this Sunday, we had someone ask us, or ask me in particular, Pastor, what do we say to those about what's going on with the protests, when they ask particularly, where's the church? What's our response to that? Where's the church? Where's the church when we talk about race and division and ethnicity and gender and all those other things? Where is the church and where is the believer? And it's a good question, right? I, I think it comes down to this, and, and the answer should be, you know, almost a call to action. Now is the time. We have such division in our country, and I want you to remember who a unifier is and not a divider, and that's Jesus Christ. If people get saved and they know Christ, there will be no division. They will be unified. When you begin to take race and, you know, ethnicity and everything else like that, and you begin to point out people's differences or focus on that, Ultimately, you have missed the fact that we all have commonality as a creation of God and as born-again believers as a child of God. You see, it's easier to focus on the difference rather than to focus on the one that unites. That's what the church needs to call to action today. We need to stand up and say, we have the solution. We have the solution for problems with race. We have the solution for gender inequality. We have the solution for all of it. Do you know what it is? It's Jesus. 
Because if you submit to Jesus Christ and you are in the family of God, you realize none have arrived. We're all children of God. And because of that, no one's better than anyone else. And we're all called to love as Jesus Christ so loved his church, willing to die for it, willing to die for you and I. See, that's the answer. God's a unifier, not a divider. We need to unite in Christ, Jesus, for the betterment of all. If we do that, these other issues will go away because the enemy is looking to seek whom we can devour, and he'll use anything he can to divide to do it. Now, you might be thinking, well, is it okay when we see people that are minimalized or victimized because of race? And it's important why I'm bringing this up, because Ruth the Moabitess, we're going to get into that tonight. She was a foreigner. She looked different. She spoke different. And just think how things would be different if, if Boaz or Naomi or the children turned around. You know, just, just think about what would be involved in that. If there was race relations that way where they were trying to divide instead of unite. You know, I understand why the George Floyd protests are happening. I really do. People should stand up for those that have been victimized. But I don't agree, I don't agree, excuse me, with those taking advantage of peaceful protests, right, to destroy and loot the very cities that hardworking men and women have poured their sweat and blood to build. Friends, if, if we're really looking to unite, if we, if we really say that's what we want here, right, if we're, we're looking to solve the disparity issue between gender, race, and economics, again, we need to put on Christ. That needs to be our marching order. And we are going to see an example of that in this book. We're going to see a very example of how it should be done. And there we'll find true equality because Jesus Christ is the embodiment of compassion and love. If we do that, there again will be no disparity. There'll be no hate. The devil keeps setting the bait and humanity bites hook, line, and sinker. We need to be praying for our communities, praying to Jesus for a great awakening, a church revival, and it needs to be broken out across the country, not just in our neighborhoods. We need to be praying big, big. We need to be preparing for the battle. We need to be in the will of the Lord. We need to be ready. We need to be prayed up. You know, we need to be the hands and feet of Christ. That's what we need to be. Again, I share this because Ruth was a Moabitess. She's a foreigner, right? She was from an incestuous family line, the family line of Lot. I mean, if there was somebody that was growing up that said, man, they were dealt a bad hand, Ruth could have raised her hand and said, what? She didn't get chose to what family she was born into or what country she was born in. She could choose her bloodline, no different than any of us. But she had choice. She had free will. She had humility. And she made good choices. And because of that, we look to her today, not only as a daughter of God, but as an example, a beautiful example 
of not only humility, but of contentment and just a pleasant, pleasant person. Well, if we learn one thing from this account is that God cares and desires to save us all regardless of how different we may look, how different we might speak. Jesus came to die, to unite us all into a family of believers. You can read in your scripture, Jew and Gentile. That means Jew and Greek or Jew and everyone else, male and female. He says there is neither male nor female. You remember when Paul said that? Every skin color from every place of origin. If, if Naomi and Boaz would have written Ruth off because she was a foreigner, because she looked different, because she spoke different, because she dressed different, then both would have missed the blessed privilege to be the great-grandfather, which Boaz was, or the great-great-grandmother, which Naomi was, of King David. Of King David. Which would ultimately be chosen the very chosen line of God to bring forth the promised Messiah, the Savior of us all. The account in the book of Ruth begins in Bethlehem, Judah, the very place where the baby Jesus would begin his human life. I don't think there's any coincidence in that either. This book connects the house of David with the tribe of Judah. That's what it does. It's a very important book. Four chapters, one of your smaller books, but powerful and important. A book of influence. If you knew right now all that God was going to do within your life, your family, or your circle of influence, what do you think you would do? What would you do differently? If you could see what God could see, Ruth didn't know, nor did Naomi when she was going there, nor did Boaz for that matter. But God did. And just so we didn't think there was any coincidences, he purposed the locations. Even the names in the Hebrew, which we're going to talk about tonight. Some of you are looking at me, so you may not know what I'm talking about, Bethlehem Judah, and what that name actually means in the Hebrew. And the fact that there's a famine going on. If you've ever thought about why that's important within these first two verses, it's, it's, it's incredibly important because it sets the stage of being in God's will and trusting God and knowing that God has already gone before us, even when we can't see it. That's powerful. God is looking for Naomi's, Ruth, and Boaz's all the time, and every one of us, right? And the New Testament, many, many of you probably heard, we all need a Barnabas, we all need a Paul, and we all need a Timothy, right? We all need a Barnabas. What was he called? Son of encouragement, right? We all need a Paul, a pastor, or someone that is discipling us and invested in our lives. And we all need to be invested in other people's lives as a young Timothy comes in our path or Timothia, if she's a female, comes in our path and we turn around and we love on them and disciple them. Every one of us needs a Barnabas, a Paul, and a Timothy. Do you have those in your lives today, you know? The primary purpose of this book, I believe, is to present 
the doctrine of redemption. The doctrine of salvation. That's what we're going to read. Redemption is only possible through a kinsman redeemer. Jesus Christ is our kinsman, right? He's our kinsman redeemer. And this explains why God came as the God-man, Jesus Christ, human as well as divine. Boaz is a type of foreshadowing or uh, type for the humanity of that kinsman redeemer that would come through Jesus. Now, who is the inspired author? According to the Talmud, if you look at Jewish tradition, the prophet Samuel wrote the book of Ruth. That's who the Jews would ascribe or attribute the authorship to. But if we read the book carefully in the four chapters, it's important to note that the text itself says nothing about the author. Samuel was the last judge of Israel and the one who was anointed king, or anointed King David, excuse me, but, but it says nothing. So let me to continue to set the context for the book tonight. I know I'm being a little long-winded, but this is very important to understand these four chapters, because many of us probably reading our Bibles have read through these four chapters in probably an hour, and maybe we missed incredible significance that's before us. The events of Ruth occurred sometime between 1160 B.C. and 1100 B.C., during the latter period of the judges. We see that in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to read that in a minute. These were very dark days, full of suffering, brought about by the Israelites because of idolatry and immorality. Part of the judgment God had brought upon sinful people was to include a famine and a war. The book of Ruth opens with this report of a famine, which drove Naomi's family out of Bethlehem into the neighboring Moab. Naomi eventually returns with Ruth because she heard in verse 6 that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. Very significant. Very significant. Underline that in your Bibles. Because what did Elimelech do? Elimelech trusted in his sight, in his understanding, in his intellect. Now, again, I want to be transparent. If you knew a famine was coming, would you not want to protect and feed your children and your friends and your loved ones and your spouse? Would you not want to make provisions for that? Even if it meant that you had to leave your hometown, your city, your you know, township, wherever you are, and if it meant you had to relocate out west or into another country, what wouldn't you do to take care of those you love? But what if it's not in the will of the Lord? What do you mean, not in the will of the Lord? What if God wants to demonstrate his omnipotence, his power, by being a wonderful provider and caring for us in spite of the circumstances that are going on around us? What if our circumstances change, but our God never does? Because he's the ancient of days. Fill in the blank with a pandemic. Fill in the blank with what we read in prophecy. 27% of your Bibles is prophecy. What's coming next? Famine. What do we do? Well, we see when Elimelech demonstrates intellectualism and reason within the human sphere, we begin to see what we would do as humans. But what would God have us to do? 
and what's the right answer? And these are important questions because we begin to understand the very character of God. He's our provider. And he doesn't need us to lend him a hand. He doesn't need a micromanager. We spend our whole lives coming alongside God, giving him suggestions and how life should go, the race we should run. Are we really looking for God's will be done? These are heavy things. Here you thought you were coming into the book of Ruth. It's a great account, four chapters, you know, this love, the drama. You, thought, you guys were like Hallmark, Hallmark time. But there's so much more. There's theology in this book. This book teaches us the character of God and our response to that. It teaches us, again, redemption and salvation. Do you know the first mention in your Bibles of famine? Do you know where that is? The first mention anywhere in your Bible of famine, it's, it's in Genesis chapter 26, verse 1, right? It was such a grievous famine that it compelled Abraham to go down to the land of Egypt. Another famine mentioned in the days of Isaac caused him to go to Gerar, right? In Genesis chapter 26, you look towards verse 17. But I think the most remarkable of all, which was in the time and arose in Egypt of the days of Joseph. We all remember that one. That lasted what? How many years? Seven years. That's right. Seven years. Genesis chapter 41 through chapter 45. Why were famines sent? There's over 13 different times in your scriptures that it has the uh, identifier of a famine that comes and then causation or an effect after that. Over 13 different times, you can look it up. What does a famine signify? It's important. It's right in the first verse that we're going to read tonight. It begins with a famine. What is God trying to teach us in the context of what was going on at that time? Well, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Let's be Bereans. We're going to string some pearls. Look at verse 22. In chapter 28, you might remember we went through the book of Deuteronomy. It has the blessings and the curses. The blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. Do you remember that? And it was, you know, pronounced from Ebal, if you remember, and they yelled back, back and forth with a loud voice as they were claiming these, you know, Mount Gearsome, the blessings that were beautiful, right? Mount Ebal on the other side. And I, I draw your attention to, again, right around verse 22. Look with me at the curses. The Lord will strike you with the consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever, with the sword, with scorching, with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. Do you see that first thing, Well, The Lord shall strike you with what? Consumption. What does that mean? The idea behind that is hunger. You will not be able to fill your belly. You will not be able to consume what you need. You will be wanting. And this is a response to the curse because of disobedience. So we see in context that God is using famine as what? Judgment. 
And as a matter of fact, we're going to continue to see that when we study prophecy and Matthew chapter 24, as we've read in different places, what happens? Famine comes, and primarily in context speaking to the Jewish people, but it's judgment, right? What about 2 Samuel chapter 21? Turn there with me, please. 2 Samuel chapter 21. Let's look at verse 1. Remember the Gibeonites? David avenges them. Chapter 21 of 2 Samuel, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. Again, it's what? Judgment. We see it's judgment. Because of sin. In this case, King Saul and his sin. Look at 2 Kings with me, please. 2 Kings chapter 6. Continue to turn to your right. 2 Kings chapter 6. Let's look at verse 25. We see wars going on. Areas of northern Israel, and we see famine present. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 25, And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. Boy, that makes you... (laughs) Right? Look at chapter 8. Let's look at verse 1. Elisha. Then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord God has called, or the Lord has called for a famine. Who calls it? Who's the author? The Lord God. Did you ever study that before? Did you know that? That every time we see famine in the Bible, every time it's authored by the Lord. And it's a form of correction and judgment. What about chapter, what is it, 25, I believe? Twenty-five, verse three, Second Kings. Right? The fallen captivity of Judah. So we looked at the northern and the southern tribes now, right? By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And this is at the time of Zedekiah. Remember, Zedekiah was reigning in Judah at that time. And this was due to the captivity, and it was being warned because of idolatry and sin. But they wouldn't listen to the prophets. So what did God do? God sent a famine for judgment. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 14, please. Again, to your right. Jeremiah chapter 14, let's look at verse 15. If you look at verse 15 here, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, 
whom I did not send, who say the sword and the famine shall not be in this land. Do you remember that? That was one of the things that was going on. The prophets at that point, not the prophets of the Lord, but false prophets had arose and they were trying to give a good word to the king so that they could find favor with that king. And they were lying to him and saying, oh, there, there's not going to be any famine king. There's nothing that's bad that's going to happen that way. And Jeremiah was trying to go back and go, what are you, that's a lie. That's not from the Lord. And God deals with it directly. He says, look, he said, they didn't come in my name who I did not send, who say the sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. So again, judgment for false witness, lying, false prophesying. Also, we see a judgment and famine, right? You can look at chapter 19, verse 9 in Jeremiah. You can look at chapter 42, verse 17. And the last one I'd like us to look at is in the book of Amos. Let's turn to Amos, chapter 8. Amos, chapter 8. At the time of Amaziah, if you look at right around verse 11... Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, not a thirst of water, but uh, the hearing of the words of the Lord. So we also see another kind of famine here, and I wanted to point that out. Now we see a spiritual famine. Friends, I think that's what we've been having in this country. We've had a, sp a spiritual famine where are the teachers of the word of God standing in the gap? Where are men at any cost teaching the word of God and not willing to compromise? He says that I will send a famine of the land, not a famine of bread nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord, a famine that God would that they wouldn't be able to hear, they wouldn't be able to process, they wouldn't understand. One in one ear out the other. That's, that's frightening, isn't it? You know what that is? That's giving them over to their own debased minds and hearts. That's what we see here. And as I mentioned, you can continue reading. The Bible gives at least 13 different accounts, right, of famine that God either caused or allowed as a form of judgment. So you can turn back to Ruth. So when we read in the first verse of Ruth, famine, what should be triggered off in your head at this point? Judgment. Judgment. Now we're grounded. Now we've been grounded in context within the book. We know this is a time of judgment that's being brought to Israel. God is the author of it, and what's he want? Does he want us to run away from the judgment? Or does he want us to turn around and pray God into the trial with us? That's what he wants, that we can have right relationships. Right? Well, this sets the stage for Limelech and his family to escape a famine. There's a reason now. We, we need to book out of here, man. We need, we've been looking for a reason to leave, and now we found a reason to leave. Let's, let's just get out of Dodge. After all, it's going to be a famine, right? Have you ever heard the saying, the devil's in the details? You guys heard that saying? It's interesting if you look up Nietzsche a German philosopher and poet 
from 1844 to 1900. Also, he was a self-proclaimed atheist. He was credited with that quote. However, if you do a little searching, you'd realize that it wasn't birthed with Nietzsche. There was another idea that came before that. It was by Gustave Flaubert. He was a Frenchman. He was born 1821 to 1880. He actually was born earlier and lived earlier, and Nietzsche came after him. And you know what he was also often quoted saying? God is in the details. That's how it began. God is in the details. He, just like we see a false messiah, a false prophet, a false witness, the enemy takes what's true and tries to manipulate it and twist it and make it new. But originally it was God is in the details. Every detail. Anyway, the, the point is the Holy Spirit gives us details. That's why in verse 1, we see several details. We, we have to become students of the Word of God, that we just don't skip over a word or, or a phrase. We, we meditate on it. We chew it. We, we allow it to be broken down. You know, let it, let it do its work, and then we swallow and enjoy it. It's not a quick snack. It's, it's not there to get, you know, to, to fill a, just hit a quick appetite button, right? How many of you remember the Jetsons when we were kids, some of us, right? Remember the Jetsons? Da, 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 you know, that Rosie would hit the thing and, you know, the pizza thing would come or whatever they had. It came out of a little pill and we all thought we were going to have that one day, right? We got ripped off. <laughs> all the things that have come with technology and we still can't get that Jetson pizza or a flying car, by the way. Well, you ready to dig into Scripture tonight? You getting it? You get the point? We need, to be, we need to be in the details. We need to let the Holy Spirit be the teacher. We need to be in the details. Get a notebook. Get a pen. There's some in the back, or there were some in the back. I think they're in a wicker basket back there. Get a notebook. Get a pen. Take notes. Study these things. Go over them again. Take a rake. You know, as an under-shepherd, a pastor, I take a rake through the Word of God. You take a rake through it. Somebody else takes a rake through it. Each time we come away with different fruit, different me, different things that the Lord wants to speak to us. We can never, ever exhaust the Word of God. Let's get out our rakes. Verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, who dwelt or dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. A lot of details. I want, I want you to take and underline some of those details that you think might be important. First one, in the days of the judges. Second one, a famine. A certain man will learn his name Elimelech. Bethlehem Judah dwell in the country of Moab, a wasteland. He, his wife, his two sons, the family. Who does the enemy want to attack? The family. Look at how many points, four or five points, right in one verse. Apparently, due to the wickedness of the nation at this time, right, of Israel, God brought forth a famine and judgment. And again, Elimelech looks to escape 
the impact of the famine for his wife and family. Sounds good, right? I mean, sounds reasonable. Do you remember when I asked you earlier that question, what would you do if you knew a famine was coming? Right? Come in your own town, city, or state. What would you do? I really wanted you to think about that. What would you do if you were a Limelac right now? You know what? He, can I say we? We can make the same critical error he did. Not once in verse 1, when he's already decided to pick up his family and move, did he ever consult God. What is one of the first things that God has ever called us to do? Seek the Lord. Go to the Lord to understand his will, right? What's the second thing we always do? We're prayed up. And then the third thing, we're always ready for the battle. It's in succession that way. It's never going to change. He's the ancient of days. Well, did Elimelech seek the Lord? Is there any even thing where he went and he said he even prayed or he, he took a moment to fast or, or anything? Nothing. We see nothing. We've got tremendous details. Remember, God is the God of what? Details. As Gustav said, he's, he's a God of details. The Holy Spirit is the author of details. And yet that detail's left out because it didn't happen. It was a critical error. He didn't see God. He simply reacts to the situation going on around him. The sad thing is, it's going to cost him his life and the life of his two adult boys. It seems like a good thing to do. It seems reasonable. It seems logical. But what does any of that have to do with the plans of the Lord? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, it's the exact opposite of what we would normally think. We want to be logical. We, we want to avoid pain. We want to avoid discomfort. But many times, God brings us into that place so he can show who he is and how reliable he is. That he always holds us right in his hand. And he never lets us go. It's a way for him to prove himself to us. Not that he needs to, but he loves to. That we might draw closer to him and trust him more and more. He looks to escape the famine. We read here, he says he's going to go to a foreign land, the land of the Moabites. He was from the land of Bethlehem, Judah. That was the next important detail we are given. You know names in the Hebrew mean something. You know that. We've been studying the Old Testament for a while now. Anybody know what the name Bethlehem means? House of bread. House of bread. Bethel's house of God. House of bread, right? House of bread. Anybody know what the name Judah means? Praise. It means the house of bread and praise. So I want you to understand what the Holy Spirit's communicating to us. He's saying right now that Elimelech is going to leave the house of bread and praise because he's afraid of a famine that's coming and he's going to go to Moab, which is a wasteland. Do you see it now? That he's going to leave the source to go to another land in search of something that God gave him a neon sign, Bethlehem, Judah, house of bread, praise. But he's not going to trust the Lord. He's going to trust his belly. 
He's going to trust his brain. Have we ever done that? Are we doing that? I know I can do that. It's a good word. He's going to leave the house of bread and praise to go to the land of Moab, which God's going to describe as a wasteland. Look in your Bible. Turn to Psalm 108. Ladies, you might remember Lisa led a study for the ladies in the book, right, of Ruth. And I believe she took you ladies through this passage in Psalm 108, verse 9. I think this, uh, this Saturday, the ladies have another study. I encourage you ladies to come out for that. It's a rich time in the Lord. And bring a friend with you. Bring a friend with you that way. We all need instruction. We need the Lord. It's at 9 a.m. Psalm 108, look at verse 9. What's it say? Moab is my what? Wash pot. The Lord says, Moab is my wash pot. Do you know what that means? Moab is my garbage can. I'm going to leave the house of bread and praise to go to the garbage can. That's what, the, that's what the Lord's telling them. He's telling everybody that. He says, you're going to leave where you are because you think there's something better for you on the other side, the grass that's greener? You're going to leave where God has planted you and established you for a work, for a purpose? Now listen, if God says go, you go. But if God doesn't say go and you're seeking, oh, you might be looking in all the wrong directions. Elimelech, you know what his name means? My God is king. You're named my God is king. You know what that? So your whole life, you point to the fact that your God is king. And then the minute that the famine comes, you're not acting like your God is king. You're acting like your God needs help, and you're going to the wash pot in the wasteland. Do you see the irony in it? He wasn't acting like his God was king. He sent off to run off to Moab without direction or consent from God. His wife, Naomi, you know what her name means? Pleasant. I love that. Pleasant, beautiful. I find it fitting for her countenance. As we'll read the book, you'll understand if you haven't read the book of Ruth before. You know, there's just some people that are so pleasant to be around. You all know people like that. I know we're not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, we're not talking about me here. I mean, right? But other people that are actually pleasant to be around, right? I want you to think about that for a minute. You just want to be around them. You actually come away better rather than bitter. By spending time with them, you come away full rather than drained. You're better rather than bitter. There's just some people that are really pleasant to be around. I know a lot of Naomi's in here. A lot of ladies in this church are pleasant. The sisters, they get together, they encourage each other. Guys, we're a little rough around the edges, right? But the ladies, pleasant. It's beautiful. She followed her husband in submission. Ephesians, right? We read that in Ephesians. She followed her husband in submission and did not suffer 
the consequences of his rash decision. This is another great lesson for all of us here, not just for the ladies, but that submission and obedience to Christ comes with provision and protection from our Lord. Obedience and submission to Christ comes with provision and protection from our Lord. See, I, I believe the point from verse 1 that we, we learn here is that Elimelech was trusting in his self-preservation skills. Right? You know, today, we know about people like that today. You know, they got Fort Knox buried in their backyard. You know, and they're prepared for that, I don't want to say rainy day, for that nuclear day. Right? And, and, and look, I, you know, I've made the joke, you know, I, I don't want to be here. Uh, you know what I want to do? If I knew that something like that was coming down, I want to meet up with you all at church, and I want to worship, and I want to just be singing to the Lord, and whatever happens, happens. We're together. We're praising God. I can't think of anything better than that than to be with the family of God singing as we close our eyes and open our eyes with Jesus, and we just keep singing, man. We just keep singing, because we all know, we're, we're all just, we got the lyrics, man. We, we're there. Can't think of anything better than that. You know, he, he was trusting in self-preservation skills more than he was seeking God. Trust in his protection, despite what was happening around him, despite his, his circumstances. And I really do believe, with everything we just went through with this pandemic, this is a good word for us today. We often want to run. We often want to run when we should be praying, kneeling, and fasting. Did we all do that during those eight weeks? Did we pray? Did we kneel? Did we fast? You know, we do a corporate fast every year here at Calvary Chapel. You know, the Lord's been speaking a word to me that we need to do another one. I know we did our one for the year, but we need to do another fast. We're going to talk about some dates and what that'll look like. We also need to have a, a prayer time where we open the church up for like a Friday, a Saturday, and man, we just, we just keep praying. People come in and you fall asleep, you fall asleep. Wake up, keep praying. Yeah. Amen. We do that, right? Fasting and prayer. It's time, isn't it? We're praying about it. See when the Lord tells us here in the next. I want to see the whole flock come together. Again, I, in these days, we all need to be together. Again, if you're home, get your butts here. Don't forsake the gathering of the saints. You need to be here. If, you want, if you're concerned, wear a mask. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That makes you feel good. Do it. You can sit on one side of the room. Somebody else can sit on the other. It's okay. I just want you under the word. I want you to be encouraged with your brothers and sisters. You're not alone. You're not alone. Limelech wanted to run. He wasn't interested in kneeling, and praying, and fasting. It's interesting, in verse 6, we learn that Naomi received word from those back in Bethlehem, Judah. Do you see that? That not only were they alive, but the Lord visited his people by doing what? 
giving them bread. Just as the name Bethlehem Judah suggests, house of bread, God brought the bread. So do, do you see that already? Before we've even really got beyond a couple verses here, we've already learned an important lesson. One, not to lean on our understanding, but in all you know, in all ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct our paths. We learned that. Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6, check. True, true, true. Okay, amen. What else did we learn? That when we get ahead of God and aren't in his will necessarily, we miss God's very best. For those in Bethlehem, Judah, there was an opportunity to see reconciliation and repentance. Elimelech met with death. He didn't meet with new birth. Those in Bethlehem, Judah, when God visited, he brought new life. He brought bread to the house of bread, to the house of praise, to the place of praise, where they would praise God. They went from a place of where they would praise God to the place where God made it a wasteland. How often do we run to the wasteland when we should be standing, kneeling, praying, fasting, in the house of praise, in the house of bread. If God, again, tells you to go, go. But if God tells you to stay the course, stay the course, even if it means it works contrary to what you might believe is best. The instruction of wisdom comes from trusting God, right? We've already talked about that. Proverbs chapter 3. It's not an opinion. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Trust God. It's foundational. You will never grow in your faith in sanctification until you learn how to trust God moment by moment. Notice I didn't say it's not a declaration of trust. I trust you. Yes. And then the trial comes and we run. You're, you're, you're going to be a runner. We're all runners, right? We're escapists. We are. We, nobody here loves discomfort. We're not like running to like the kidney stone clinic. Give me one of those. No. None of us want that. But you're a runner. You're either going to run to God or you're going to run away from God. Which direction are you going to run in? God tells us to run to the house of bread, to run to the house of praise. That's what he shows us here. They were alive and well, despite their sin, despite their carnality, despite how dark it was there. God is so faithful and loving with compassion that even in sin city, God did what? God saved and protected. He provided. Now, Elimelech, let's read verse 2 here. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mathalon and Chilion. You know, Everites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. So we get their names. What do their names mean in Hebrew? Unhealthy and puny. Who, who names your kids that? Unhealthy... It, you know what? You're unhealthy. You, you're puny. That's what he named them. Mathlon, unhealthy, and Chilion, puny. Piers, these children were a little bit sickly. 
Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. God is a God of details. And she was left and her two sons. She was widowed. Her husband dies. We're not given the details because the details weren't important. We've been given everything we need already in these first three verses to know why. He made Moab his home when God had already provided to the children of Israel with an inheritance in the promised land. He didn't occupy that. You look at Reuben, right? Gad, half the tribe of Manasseh, right? That's set on the east side. As we'll continue reading, you look and see what tribes are destroyed and the numbers that drop first. Gad. Those that saw this beautiful green place for all their animals and everything, and they would settle for God's second best or last best, rather than God bringing them over that Jordan to his very best. It wasn't God's plan, and there's always consequences to moving out of the will of God. We need to acknowledge that. God is sovereign. Yes, he gives us free will, but there are consequences to our choices. When we step out of God's will, often trouble will come. Now they took wives of the woman of Moab. The name of one was Oprah, and the other name was Ruth, or Arpah, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. Now, what was the longest famine up to this point? We talked about it already. That was already occurred. How many years? Seven, right? We're going to read back, in, or we're going to read in verse 6 that Naomi had already got word, or that she's going to get word that after this period of time that what had happened? God already provided sustenance to those back in Bethlehem, Judah. Up until this point, there was a covering for these boys since they were brought there by their father. But when they decided to marry women outside of the tribes of Israel, what did they do? Hold your finger here and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look at verse 4, please. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and you will destroy destroy you suddenly, right? But if you go back up to verse 3, what does it say? Nor shall you make marriages with them. It was against the Mosaic law. They were not to marry outside that way. They were married to marry their the other children of Israel, God's chosen people. You see, this is what happens with idolatry. When you have idolatry, you know what follows after idolatry? Apostasy. You write that in the margin. You see idolatry, and then almost every time, what comes from idolatry is apostasy. Apostasy is the rejection of God by someone who was formerly a follower of God. Someone who claimed to be a follower of God, they, they go down a different path. You know, this term apostasy, it denotes a defection, a departure, a revolt, a rebellion. It is described as a willingly or a willing falling away or direct rebellion against God. So when we see idolatry, when we see 
not following God's commandments and statutes, what will certainly follow is apostasy. No one's exempt from it. If that doesn't frighten you, I don't know what does. They were in this land 10 years. They weren't in fellowship with God. They didn't go back for feast days. They didn't, they didn't do any of that. They didn't keep Shabbat. They didn't do anything. Not even the moral law, necessarily. It was only a matter of time till they were going to be tempted just as we read in Deuteronomy 7, as it said, that you would eventually be drawn away. God's word is always right. They were going to be tempted by pagan idols, ideologies, and practices. And that's what happens to you and I when we try to flirt with the world and the things of the world. You know what happens? It begins to pull us away. I'm going to ask you a question. Um, Maybe you've gone on safari. Maybe you've turned around and maybe you like to look at nature, God's creation. And, you know, many of us have house dogs, right? Domesticated dogs. I've never seen a domesticated dog set loose into the wild and the dog turn around and convert the wolves into domesticated dogs. Never seen it. No, contrary. When the domesticated dog goes into the wild, the wild wolves do what? Make that dog wild every single time. They took wives of the Moabites against God's command. Now, Oprah or Orpah, that name means deer or fawn. This is important. Again, the name in Hebrew means something. Deer or fawn. Why was it drawing it out? Because we're seeing that Oprah was doing, she was what? She was athletic. She would have been an athletic woman. And she marries this man that was sickly. Isn't that interesting? You think that's God's plan? We know it's not. It's against his Mosaic law. We know it's not. It was against the law at that time. But Ruth, you know what her name means? Beauty and personality. I can only imagine she must have been incredibly beautiful. Not necessarily just outward, but I think as all of us would look as we learn more about Ruth, just the inward heart of a woman that's humble and submitted unto the Lord. Your God will be my God, she says. I will follow you. I will do, oh man. Guys, how about it, right? The most attractive thing that you can find in a woman is a woman that is consecrated unto the Lord, that loves Jesus more than she loves you. There's nothing better than that, guys, huh? A woman that loves Jesus more than she loves you. Hot all day long, right? And you know what's kind of cool about this is you think ahead, you know. Jesus, when he came, because he was born in Bethlehem, Judah, right? He was born in Bethlehem. It wasn't called Bethlehem, Judah then, but it was called Bethlehem. When he was born there, you know, you think about it. He came, obviously, I've already mentioned he's going to come of that line, the bloodline. To think he had in his human body the blood, God, God, man, 100% human, 100% divine. He came as a human, the God man, and he took the bloodline of Ruth. Her DNA was in Jesus. 
Just think about that for a minute. And what's her name again? Beautiful and what? Pleasant. Personality. Right? Beautiful. Hmm, flowing through his, his veins that way. Verse 5, and we'll close here tonight. Then both Mahathon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. I can't imagine the grief, the sorrow surrounding that home. Now Naomi lost her two sickly children, obviously her husband prior, and now these women lost their husbands. Tragedy all around. Remember I mentioned earlier, you thought, well, Ruth, it's like turning on the Hallmark Channel. Most of you at this point are going, ah, man, this is too sad. We got to turn it off. Turn it off, man. Turn off the program. But the coolest part about the book of Ruth is this sets the stage, the context, because this is a real account. It's not a story. For us to see the power of redemption and salvation in the heart of a human being. It's not too depressing when you see how it ends. And neither is what we're going through when we look at it through the helmet of salvation and not with the temporal. Because in the temporal right now, it all seems overwhelming. It all seems like we can't make it another day. But when we look to the eternal and what awaits each and every one of us, our future, it is done, it is complete. It's glory. It's to be with Jesus in perfect union. A true marriage where there is no defilement. A true relationship where there is no sickness, death, or tears to wipe away. Harmony, beauty, contentment, all awaiting us. For those that are reminded who God is and who we are in God, in Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus does? He turns great despair into great hope. He's going to change this great tragedy into the greatest account that we have in our Bibles that will point ultimately to Jesus, the Messiah, the one who redeemed you and I and seeks to redeem all of humanity. Do you remember what I asked you at the beginning of the study? What you thought about or what you believed about coincidences and free will or choice? Do you remember that? Can God work within the construct of both? I want you to think about what was going on. I called it C cubed again. If you remember compromise, corruption, and confusion. All of the things that was going on. Do we know anything about that today? Do we know what it looks like in a country to have compromise? Yeah. Do we know what it looks like in a country to have corruption, a world? Do we know what it looks like to be confused where one day we're told the data says this, the next day the data says that, one way, wear a mask, don't wear the who says don't wear it, now we say wear it, what? Do we know what confusion is today? C cubed. God's going to demonstrate in the rest of this book that Naomi and Ruth's lowest moment, at their lowest possible moment, 
he can deliver those ladies out of trouble and bring them and us to an understanding of the true power of redemption. There is power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the blood. And that's what awaits us. We need to talk about that. We need to to shout that from the mountaintops. God can save us all. All humanity, regardless, again, of gender, race, skin color, ethnicity, even against the backdrop of sin and idolatry. That's why we can say, friends, the best is still yet to come. It's still yet to come. If the Lord allows, and we come back next week, God's going to begin to move on the heart of Naomi and Ruth, and he's going to draw them back into his will. He's going to draw them back into his perfect will. He's going to demonstrate his protection and his provision and ultimately establish a messianic line through a foreigner. I love that. Now ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ. I never will get tired of saying that. A foreigner, but now an ancestor. That's me, man. I was a foreigner. I was lost, but I've been saved. I was a foreigner, but now I'm an ancestor. I'm a child of God. And so are you. I'll never get tired of saying that. And that's what awaits a lost and dying world. You may think nobody's out there, nobody's thinking or caring about you, but you are loved. You are loved. Well, he's going to demonstrate again protection and provision. You ever feel disqualified? Maybe somebody out there is hearing this and they think they're disqualified to follow and serve God because some of some human prejudice. But God accepts every willing person into his kingdom. God chooses Ruth to be a direct ancestor of Jesus Christ, and he may be calling you. I know he is. He's calling you tonight. The Bible says, knock and the door is open, right? Ask and you will receive, seek and you will find. Jesus Christ wants to come into your heart tonight and he wants to make that foreigner a child, a beloved, not just a creation, but a child of God. He wants to welcome you home. See, because that's what he says to you, welcome home. In essence, in some way, we all have that capability to be prodigals. Because God has always sought to save. And when we have rebelled and walked away, it's because he's the ancient of days that we know how to turn back. And if he can do that in our lives, he can do that in anybody's life. The lost are saved. They find their way, right? We sing the song at the sound of his great name, right? We, we know it. The question is, is are we willing to be helped? Are we willing to be saved? I'm going to leave you with one last thought. Do you know who Boaz's mother was? Do you know who Boaz's mother was? You know. It was Rahab the harlot. It was Rahab the harlot. Now let's think about that, because there is no coincidence. Remember I asked you at the beginning, is there a coincidence? 
What did God do in Boaz's life before he even understood anything about diversity? He gave him a mom that was a foreigner. It's all Boaz knew. Growing up, there was no such thing to him. And when he meets Ruth the Moabitess, she probably reminds him a little bit of mom because she's a foreigner, but Boaz doesn't see with those kind of eyes any longer because it was real to him. And when we look through the eyes of Christ that way, we won't see color, we won't see gender, we won't see any of that either. But it's not until it becomes personal. It's not until we live it and experience it and we let our guard down long enough to experience the most amazing, beautiful, mind-blowing relationship and experience of someone that we look at and looks different and to only realize they're more like us or more in common with us than they are different just because of pigmentation. I once heard it said, to create equality, we need to create an artificial start line. In other words, for those that are disadvantaged, we put them five paces ahead. You might remember President Clinton had done that through affirmative and different things like that, action and policies. Putting someone ahead or behind isn't going to help you, but putting someone arm in arm and allowing them to feel the beat of your heart and you feel the beat of theirs, well, now that's a brother and a sister. And you know what makes their heart beat and they know what makes yours beat. And you don't have to worry about inequality because you become one. One in the family of God, one as a child, brothers and sisters, blood-bought, got off the same Noah's Ark God had already gone before Boaz to prepare his heart to see past divisions, wraith and ethnicity. Over and over again, God is showing us that he loves his creation. And when a willing heart is ready, God is willing to save. And the time for the church to stand up and take action is now. And the call for action is to cry unity in Jesus. Maranatha. Let's stand and we'll worship our Lord and Savior.
we say, you're a good, good father. It's who you are, right? We're loved by him. I can't think of anything better to end our service and our time together here tonight, but our eyes and our focus on Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. May God bless you. May he keep you. May his countenance shine upon you. And may you experience his perfect love and will every day and every moment of your life. God bless you all. I love you all. And as we say, Maranatha. God bless you guys. Hope to see you on Sunday, Lord willing, 8.30 and 10.30. Before we go